Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of CEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Jess Watkins. Jess is a research officer at the LSE's Middle East Centre. Uh, she's someone who's written extensively on a range of really interesting things pertaining to, to the, the stuff that we're doing here at CEPAD, and I'm really excited to, to speak with her today. So Jess, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, I've just had a look at some of your previous guests, and uh, yeah, it's an honour to be added to the list. Well, it's it's our pleasure, Jess. It's really exciting to uh, to to add you to that list. And I should say at the start, I believe that one of your your former bosses was uh, was a previous guest of ours. Yeah, for, well, yes, one of your uh, Fred Fred Wary from uh, well, Nark Carnegie, I think, was. Um, my boss when I was at Rand a few years ago, uh, working on Iraq. So yeah, I haven't uh, seen him for a few years, but my current boss is Toby uh, Dodge, who I know has been very involved in the CEPAD program as well. He has. He's been very, very generous with time, effort and energy. But then again, so has Fred. So it's it's great that that these networks are, are increasing. And I guess it's a very small academic world that we reside in. Um, (laughs) Jess, can you tell us how did you get interested in, in Iraq and, and the Middle East broadly, please? In the Middle East, um, well, it, it doesn't run in the family. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, the uh, the interest really started with the language. Um, when I was at school, I, I, I did well at languages and I thought, well, I was up for an extra challenge um, and uh, I wasn't quite sure what to go for at university, but... I did a gap year in Morocco, um, and when I went, I didn't even know what language they spoke. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and they speak a very different kind of Arabic to most of the rest of the Middle East. But um, that was what started the interest in Arabic, and I read Oriental Studies at, at Cambridge. Um, the most part of that was Arabic language, um, and actually there was there was some history and literature thrown in, but there was there wasn't actually um, a politics component. So I, I had. Um, uh, really, uh, my, my introduction to um, the politics of the Middle East is really from listening to Al Jazeera, trying to improve my Arabic. Right, okay. And, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, and Arabic is a very challenging language, and I guess at the end of that I felt that I, I had to do something that involved it to, to kind of um, make it worthwhile. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I got my um, um, I, I got a job as a as an Arabic translator in Iraq, um, and that's really how it started. So yeah. when was that, Jess? If you don't mind me asking. Um, so that was very early. I mean, that was like two thousand four, two thousand five. So early days, um, and I mean, I was really quite naive um, in many senses. I didn't know much about the. Uh, politics of southern Iraq when I when I first went I learned very quickly um and um I I guess like as a result of that 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 kind of sparked I was working a lot with the security sector um and uh, subsequently that's where my academic interests have, have laid so yeah interesting interesting so um can I ask going back to your time in Morocco what what memories do you have there other than the shock of realizing that they spoke Arabic um, well, I mean, then they also speak Berber and a, and a, and French and, yeah, of and course. parts of the country. Um, 
So, I mean, very, I was quite naive, like I was quite sheltered. I'd never really been away from my family. So it wasn't just going to the Middle East. It was just being abroad in general. Um, and I was there with a, a, a few other young volunteers and we were volunteering in a in a, a orphanage. Um, and I mean, it was, and it was uh, a southern part of Morocco, very um, unused to, to foreigners. So, um it was just like a kind of overwhelming to the senses, like really the main thing was the markets, like that was the most kind of interesting and it's, you know, the smells and the sights and, and was one of those things that you kind of associate with, with, um, with the Middle East. So, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so so jumping back to um, to your time in Iraq, you were translating. You were watching Al Jazeera to get up to speed with with the political dimensions. But then, what what did you do after your time translating? Uh, so, I mean, th- at the time when I was there, it was um, I was in Iraq two thousand four, two thousand five, um, and uh, I I went on to do a master's in international relations. Um, and uh, I mean, only one component of that was on the Middle East, but uh, I, that kind of introduced me into more of the political theory side of things. Um, and I subsequently went to work at RAND. Um, I went back to Iraq for um, about six years, six months. Um, and I worked at RAND for a few years before doing my PhD at King's College London. Um, and that was with uh, at the War Studies Department. Um, and it, it, again, it wasn't the interest was really from Iraq and working with the um, Iraqi police, um, and I wanted to do something on the on the police. But um, at that time, doing working doing field work in Iraq was really not realistic, um, and I ended up my PhD was on civil policing in, in Jordan instead. Fantastic. Um, and on dispute resolution. Yeah, I, I can imagine that it was quite challenging to do that type of research at that point in Iraq. Um, what what memories can you share from your time based in in Iraq and working at that time as a as a translator? As I mean, such a mixture of experiences. Um, in a sense, it was being a fly on the wall, just being party to uh, training and. Um, I mean, there was still, when I was there in the early days, a, a kind of, now we think, naive sense of optimism about what was being achieved and um, a lot of, um, you know, re- re- um, reconstruction projects that, that all seemed to be quite productive. And things look very different when you're on the ground to when you're, you're studying them. Um, and the experience was in a lot of senses very positive despite what what was happening and um you know obviously the the iraqi police was one of the the things that went badly wrong with um uh, the the external coalition intervention um and there are there are so many lessons still to be learned that probably never will be learned um but yeah i mean i, I it was a formative experience certainly yeah, I can I can certainly imagine that it was, and uh, yeah, there must be a lot that that you have to work through in terms of the the things that you saw intellectually and and politically that will obviously have a massive impact on the the research that you are doing and and will do, I guess. Um, Jess, after your PhD, then what happened? Where did life take you then? Uh, 
That was so well. If we're going through step by step, then I had two kids. Uh, right. Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I took a few years out, but um, so for the last couple of years, I have been working at the Middle East Centre on on the conflict research program that uh, Toby Dodge is involved in, um, and it's a DFID sponsored project that looks at um, drivers of conflict um, in in the Middle East and in Iraq and Syria and also some African states as well. Um, and we're using a set of logics, um, understanding the, the role that identity politics and political marketplaces, uh, patronage networks, um, play in uh, exacerbating violence in those contexts. Fantastic. It's really, really interesting. And, and I've, I've read with keen interest some of the stuff that, that you've been doing. And I... Um, I'd like to talk about some of that, if if I may. Um, but before we get onto that, can you just tell us a little bit about what you mean by by patronage and and clientelism and things like that, please? Because I think that's increasingly important in in understanding in understanding sectarian politics and understanding networks and relationships between different groups and and political life more broadly. But we've not really spent any time discussing that on the podcast as yet. Yeah. I- yeah, absolutely. And I think it does come into a lot of the work that I have read on sectarianism, certainly in domestic politics, um, that um, sectarianism, one of its manifestations is about preserving privilege. And that is very often done through clientel um, networks. And um, so the, the, the principle that we're working with in, in the conflict research program is the um, idea of the political marketplace, which is a sort of um, modern form of patronage, which is primarily monetized. Um, and um, it can apply not only to sect, but also to ethnicity. So in um, several of the African countries that are also being studied, it's primarily ethnicity. Um, I'm not sure that um, sect and ethnic conflict always work along the same lines, but in the sense of um, patronage networks, then I think there are certainly a lot of similarities. Um, and it's interesting looking at the process from which, um, certainly in Iraq, it seems that ideology becomes less important as um, patronage becomes more ingrained. Um, and it's, it's almost a different logic that takes over. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear. And I think it's something that that we in SEPAD need to be exploring more. Although I know I know that a number of our fellows have have touched on it in detail. Um, I know Toby's doing a lot of work on it, and and Basel Saluk obviously is is doing similar types of things. Um, Jess, let's let's go more into detail then, if I may. And and there are two things that I'd like to to explore in in some detail, if I may. And the first one is the the media project, and the second one is the the reflections on beyond sectarianism. So let's talk about media first, if that's okay. Sure. Okay, yeah. Um, this was a, a year-long project that you were working on, I believe, uh, looking at, at Arab media and how, how this plays out across the region. But can you tell us a bit more about, about the initial goals of what you were trying to do and, and what, the, what, what the research questions were, please? Yeah, sure. So, I mean... So my role at the Conflict Research Program is actually looking at the role of the like, regional players, so um, mostly states in the Middle East, um, in uh, in the conflicts in Iraq and Syria. Um, and our themes, so identity politics, is um, is one of the major themes. 
Um, and the paper was really um, trying to understand in a bit more granularity than I felt had been done previously how a mainstream media was uh, really playing into um, <coughs> exacerbating or reducing sectarian narratives um, in Iraq and Syria. Um, and I wanted to look at mainstream because um, there there is certainly evidence that, that there are fringe or very politicized uh, religious channels that have been using kind of manifest uh, hate speech that, that clearly um, promoted sectarian violence. But with the case of some of the, the mainstream channels, um, and I include, I was primarily looking at Al Arabiya, Al Jazeera, um, and, uh, and Mayadeen, which is a, a Lebanese-based um, Iran-affiliated channel. Um, and it was less clear because the issue is so politicized. There are so many accusations that, um, that these channels are responsible for promoting sectarian violence. But when you really look at the content, it is it's not a straightforward issue. Um, so I was, was using kind of critical textual analysis to, to, to try and understand, you know, how in practice um, bias is conveyed and whether it amounts to sectarianism or, or essentially political bias, which exists in all media. Yeah. Um, so that was the basis of the project, really. Fantastic. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I really enjoyed reading the report, if, if you can enjoy reading such things. But um, <laughs> I found it really, really interesting and really stimulating. But can you tell us a bit about about how it actually works then? So so when you were doing this, you, you focused on the three the three channels, which I think is, is entirely understandable. But uh, why those three? And how do you actually go about doing this, this critical textual analysis? I mean, what, what is it that you actually focus on in terms of the, the, the output from these channels? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I mean, the reason I looked at those channels was it was a combination of things. I mean, Al Jazeera, so all of the satellite channels have really uh, undergone a blow. Uh, you know, the times are changing and clearly um, social media and different um, platforms for disseminating news are really having a big effect on the popularity of satellite news channels anyway. And with, uh, with the events in, in uh, Iraq and Syria in particular, the, there was clear evidence that um, the countries that, or the, the elites or the, the states that sponsored the main channels were uh, aligned. And so that, that also clearly kind of affected the claims that these channels were making to um, presenting or accurate and unbiased information. So, um, I mean, Al Jazeera is still the most popular of the of the pan-Arab uh, satellite channels, um, and Al Arabiya is close, close second, I guess. Um, and Al Mayadeen, I think, is some way behind. But um, I mean, I wanted first of all to have a channel that represented the Iran side, and also um, it also had to do with the quality of their their digital archives. You know, you have to be able to retrieve sufficient results to make it a worthwhile exercise um so yeah i mean it was it was a mixture of, of things um that that led me to focus on those three um yeah was your other question Sorry. so the other question was you've got your three stations you've got your three channels 
But then what do you do to actually facilitate the, the critical textual analysis? Because obviously yeah. they're, they're pumping out a lot of, of content. I mean, just 24 hour news, right? So, yeah. so yeah, how I do mean, you then the digest main challenge, it? Is how on earth do you, other than making impressionistic comments, and I wanted to avoid, because what's out there for, for the most part is basically people's impressions or bringing out isolated cases. So I wanted to, to have some measure of, of rigorous um, application of criteria. So I'm, I took, um, well, in my case, it was five different incidents that involved sectarian violence in one form or another. And they weren't necessarily um, purely about sectarian violence. There were different interpretations, but certainly that was um, a factor within them in the conflicts in uh, Iraq and Syria post-2011. Right. Um, and I literally, with those events, I had a 10-day window um, w within which I retrieved all of the results that I could on the website and um, on uh, YouTube and um, I could find externally. So I tried to cross-reference. Um, and clearly not everything is still there. And I'm aware of that like as a limitation to the study. But um, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of results, and uh, which involved hundreds of hours of viewing. Um, and in that, I had a kind of two-process method. One of them was like more of a deductive, looking for evidence of particular language um, that might constitute hate speech. And on the other hand, it was looking for like how a bias was conveyed. You know, the the uh, amount of time that was given to different speakers. Um, and how like contextually different tropes emerged um so yeah it was a, it was a combination i guess of deductive and uh, inductive of research so um, I mean, it's it's huge right the amount of research that you've put into this project is absolutely huge <laughs> and it was considerable <laughs> yeah yeah it, it sounds it but can you give you us <laughs> can you give us some examples of of this hate speech then <laughs> I mean, really, what I found was that the, the channels that I'm looking at didn't use. Um, there are some examples uh, that have been drawn out with regard to Al Jazeera and some of its presenters um, using hate speech. But um, the cases that I looked at, there weren't. And so I make the distinction between um, the overall kind of religious brand management that these channels put forward, which is... Um, promoting a position of religious tolerance on on the whole, and then actually contextually situating that with how they stood on certain events, and then the the, the bias clearly comes through. Um, and often, rather than it being a case of um, of manifest hate speech, it's about victimhood narratives. So that came clear clearly through that they don't justify violence on the side that they are supporting, but they um, draw a, a attention to the fact that the, the side that they're supporting are, are being subjected to acts of sectarian violence. And that that securitizes the issue of sect and makes that the, the um, uh, makes it defensible for there to be a reaction against it. Um, so that was my major finding, I guess. And what were the repercussions of this then? Of, Did you find of, causal links between this this narrative of victimhood and then particular acts or particular behaviours? Uh, no, I mean that would be so. That would be one step. Uh, I, that would be the next step, I guess. Like, and I put this study forward as a way of 
um, uh, because at the moment there is a lot more focus on using quantitative methods um, for textual analysis and media yeah, analysis. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it was an alternative way of saying, okay, you can do a lot of that and um, it's much more labor-intensive doing qualitative, but what you can learn is is infinitely more nuanced, I think. So it was a way of, of demonstrating what this method could do, really, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really important and really interesting um, and, and raises so many questions for, for what we're doing in SEPAD and, and beyond, I should say. And the, the second point that, that I, I wanted to touch on, I guess, directly links from this. And you, you've done some work on, on sort of beyond sectarianism, I guess, and reflecting on, on, on apparent moves beyond sect-based difference. How does this link then to... I mean, we'll talk about the actual work in itself um, in a minute, but how does that link to to what you've been finding in the media, which seems to be reinforcing this this sect based uh, difference or the the narratives of victimhood? Um, yeah, I I mean, I do think that that is, and this is an, an original finding, like a um, a lot of uh, literature on um, ethnic warfare uh, finds that. Um, genocide or, or uh, ethnic violence, extreme cases of ethnic violence are are often premised on victimhood narratives. Um, so I, I mean, I recognise that and it certainly comes through in the cases that I've been looking at. I mean, I guess what interested me with the media case was I was essentially, if you're, if we're thinking about how sectarianism is promoted and whether it is primarily a top-down instrumental process or a bottom-up when you consider the media they they are not it is is not necessarily clear whether they are instruments of top-down messaging or yeah. bottom-up and it, and it depends on the outlet clearly um in the cases that i was looking at it seemed to emerge quite clearly that these um even if the channels were not directly uh sent the content was not directly controlled by the uh the sponsoring political elites um, they were so heavily self-censored that they emerged, the messages emerged as being the messages of the, the regimes or the, of the elites that were sponsoring them. So it, essentially it is, uh, but I wanted to understand exactly how, how that is done because in fact there isn't so much evidence of um, the rhetorical process through which sectarianism is promoted by regimes. You know, like we hear often that the um, certain Gulf regimes are promoting Sunni sectarianism, but how in fact are they doing that? And I thought the media would be a prime, like that's got to be yeah. one of your first um, ports of call to, to assess. Um, yeah, of so, course. Yeah. <laughs> so then what are the repercussions then? I mean, let, let's move on to this, this beyond sectarianism piece, which, which I found absolutely fascinating again. Um, and it speaks to a lot of the questions that w- that we've been reflecting on over the past few months in SEPAD. And, and I know you were at uh, an event we had at the LSE where we touched on some of these themes in, in a little bit of detail. But I, I wonder, what what is it that you found from this, this really thorough sort of set of reflections about the role of, of geopolitics and transnationalism in reinforcing or, or challenging these sectarian identities? Um, well, I think, first of all, I, so I've taken a kind of 
a recent interest in sectarianism, which really has corresponded to, you know, I, I kind of was a late latecomer in a sense, and um, and I've I've read like as with many people, I guess I kind of started off with the Hashemi and Postel um, sectarianization book as a kind of point of departure to understand sectarianism in the Middle East. But like, uh, I mean, I have been primarily looking at um, the geopolitical aspect in um, my studies for or my work for a conflict research program. Um, and in the geopolitical way, it, it is mostly a case of instrumentalism. Um, but that's not to say, you know, I, I don't really subscribe to one or the other as being the way I think sectarianism can manifest in many forms. It's evolving and um, it's very difficult to, or inaccurate to suggest that that it is fabricated through one route alone. Um, and that's what makes it so interesting, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So can you tell us a bit about the, the project or the, the report that you wrote on this then, please? On, um, well, the... I'm actually um, I, I'm actually working on a, a, pro, a paper on um, Iranian soft power at the moment. It's, I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to. Um, well, I was more talking about the the piece that you wrote for the LSE called "Beyond Sectarianism: Transnational Identity Politics and Conflict in the Modern Middle East: Past, Presence, and Futures." Right. Okay. Well, that actually that was a, that was like a standalone blog piece. So, but I mean, it pertains to the whole. Um, way that I have been thinking about um, how to apply it to the conflict research program. Um, sure. Okay. In terms of um, how, yeah, it, essentially, um, a sectarianism is, is one form of identity politics, and in the region, latterly, it has been the, the prevalent one. But of course, there are others, and um, pan Arabism, pan Islamism have been also used by regimes <coughs> as a kind of mobilizing. Um, rhetoric to, to try and uh, attract subpopulations within other uh, states to, to their cause. Um, and I mean, I think that's a really interesting phenomenon to look at because uh, there, there is widespread recognition that these messages are often insincere, and yet they're, they're used like eternally. Um, and so, I mean, there's still, still something I don't entirely understand as, as um, the, the degree of effectiveness and the degree to which subject populations buy into that rhetoric or are merely using it also to their own ends. Um, I think that's something that is a lot more study. Um, yeah. I mean, can you just, can you reflect a little bit perhaps on the, on the resonance of, of sectarianism then in all of this, in the, in the work that you've done with, with the media, with this blog post, with the the stuff that you're doing on Iran and and your own research, is is there anything that you can sort of reflect on to at a sort of at a meta level that helps us to reflect on this question about the resonance of sectarianism? I mean, I I think that it's like taking it from the other direction. I actually I think it, it is, and I know that your project is specifically looking at um, sectarianism and proxies. But I think it is it is forever important to um, recognise that th this is only one of the mobilising rhetorics. Or, yes, definitely. And that it plays into a whole catalogue of technologies of power that are, are used and that um, 
to, to greater or lesser effect. And um, certainly at the moment, I think the geopolitical picture has changed from what it was a couple of years ago. Um, and there are different logics at play. Um, so, I mean, it was, I guess, from 2012 to 2015, or really until the, the kind of the, the Gulf fallout, the uh, GCC dispute, there was much more of a clear alignment of uh, Sunni versus Shia on the on the geopolitical level, and now that really has changed. Um, there's much more concern or, or uh, Saudi trying to counter the threat posed by the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and so the whole picture it looks a bit different. Um, that doesn't mean that in fact sectarianism in, is any less important, but that it's just it's kind of playing out in a different way. And I think also in the conflicts on on the on the ground because um, the, the, the kind of major periods of uh, conflict have passed or we're in a, in a lull in a lot of cases, the sectarian violence is not happening so much. But there is certainly uh, huge repercussions in terms of the um, uh, forced displacements and, um, you know, new population makeups in both Syria and Iraq. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to hear you say that. And I think it's important to, to remind ourselves of the of the way in which these changes play out in different ways and in some cases unforeseen ways on on local politics. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's another interesting aspect of, of looking at the, the the geopolitical always has local manifestations. And, um, and again, going back to the media, part of what I found was interesting was that I was looking at um, pan-Arab media channels who which represented their... Regimes or their their um, ruling elites, but the the content of what I was looking at really had very local um, applications. And for me, I think it is understanding the little details of of how you know so many so many meanings are lost unless you understand exactly the context in which they're applied. So I do, I like one of the challenges I find is trying to understand the, the small. <coughs> I think you call it being down in the weeds, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's really fascinating, really important. And I think it's so, so very important that we have people who are right down in the weeds who can can sort through all of these these real sort of intimately tiny issues and how it relates to, to the much bigger picture. So so I, I really commend you for doing it. And I'm, I'm very jealous that you have the, the ability to to do that. Because I don't think that, that everyone does. I certainly don't. But um, Jess, thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really uh, interesting and insightful talking to you. I've learned a lot and I've got so much to think about moving forward. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jess. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>